0: All
1: right, so we can start whenever. <laughs> <laughs> we should start with that.
0: Yeah. Hello, listeners. Mike is sick again. <laughs> Just Answer the Question is actually a sort of stealth podcast that tries to convince you not to have children because you'll be sick all the time if you have children. So um, we're going to try to get through this cold open without, without Mike coughing too much. How are you, Mike?
1: I'm good. Yes, this is a tremendous advertisement for um, <laughs> Aleve and various other <laughs> medications I've been taking. But no, I'm, I'm good, uh, and I'm excited to get another episode out in there.
0: Yeah. Should I use my second eyeball? What are your thoughts?
1: <laughs> well, one sort of shallow thought is I'm, I'm now just... Very curious in what it what it is you actually see most of the time. So I've been trying to picture that in my mind, um, and I just sort of picture like those pages from storybooks where you can like move one part of the page yeah. uh, or something. And I've I've I, I assume that you see that <laughs> throughout most of the day, and and in relation to not using parts of your body, um, I have attempted to do push-ups this year because I've never really used my arms uh my my arm <laughs> muscles for anything you're like so, a
0: Tyrannosaurus Rex <laughs> yeah so I can relate
1: to that so've I've broken four bones between my two arms so oh, wow. uh, I've never really used them that much so I'm trying to I'm trying to correct that but wow what what about yourself
0: <clears throat> for me I mean since this episode I've been thinking a lot about my brain which may sound weird but I've been thinking a lot about how to if I'm not using my body in all the ways I could, could I at least use my brain in ways I haven't used it? So I've been trying that and that's been really weird. And I've been injuring myself only slightly (laughs) as I try to do things differently and see if my brain will work on different things. Um, But yeah, this, this episode really has me thinking a lot about what I've got in my body that I'm just not using. And it, it has me kind of excited. I mean, because I'm 56, right. And it's like, could I still use stuff I've never used before? And I, I'm I'm excited about that possibility.
1: Yeah, so it's like a like a non supernatural superhero or something. Like yeah, yeah. Awaking parts of your body that yeah. you've never used before.
0: Yeah, without the spider bites. Yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly. And I, I should give a <clears throat> uh, plug. Um if anyone is interested, uh these interviews. The three we did here are all very um, rich and go much longer than what are included in the episode. So, for the tangent here, they're available. Um, And because I know some of the interviews we've done in the past, um, you know, that might be like 40, 45 minutes. All of these were quite long and
0: incredibly uh, interesting.
1: Went in many different directions, especially. I, and I just think of Anthony's because that was very dense and went in many directions that I very much enjoyed. But we Same here. We couldn't use everything, of course. Anyway.
0: I think we're going to use parts of Anthony's and maybe parts of all of these in future episodes because we left a lot on the cutting room floor that I want to bring back. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, my brother got so excited that he sent us two uh, postscripts. So <laughs> yes. it's always a good sign when your guests are sending you postscripts. Yes. <laughs> all right, let's do it.
1: All right. 10, blast off.
0: Everyone thinks a lot about their body, what hurts or what feels good, what looks sexy or ugly. I think we all tend to notice how our bodies are changing from day to day and year to year. Still, I suspect I think more about the philosophy of anatomy and physiology than most people do. I spent about 20 years of my scholarly life looking at the question of what our bodies have to do with our identities. In that work, I got to know a lot of people with body types that challenge social norms, a pair of siblings who are conjoined to each other a psychologist who's about three feet tall, a martial arts expert who was born with his hands attached to his shoulders, a man who found out at age 19 that he has ovaries inside, and a woman who found out in her 70s that she had been born with testes. And they all help me think really deeply about what flesh has to do with personhood, love, profession, shame, kinship, art, and joy. But I think I think about my body a lot for another reason, namely that I don't want to end up like my father wishing late in life that I had used my body when I had the chance to do so. My father underwent a very slow decline before dying at the age of 92 this past summer. He was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, MS, over 40 years ago. By the time he died, he had been quadriplegic and bedbound for many years. I would go visit my parents down in Nashville, where we had moved them to be near my sister, and to be nice, when I got back from a run at the nearby state park, I would go into his room and tell dad about what I had seen on my run. A brilliantly white owl, a doe with her fawns, a salamander that changed color as I watched it. Dad would always respond to me that he would love to run again, that when he got to heaven, the first thing he wanted to do was to go for a run. But my dad never did run, not before his MS diagnosis and not after. Just after he died, my mom told me with some bitterness that he would never so much as join her for a walk around the block he didn't exercise at all. He smoked a lot. He drank a lot of beer. Those things I remember. On the rare occasion when dad went to the beach with us, when we were growing up on Long Island, he almost never got in the water and swam. And we went to Fire Island, where the beautiful cream-colored beaches went on for miles, and the waves would thrill us and sometimes threaten to kill us, where the sun would bake you like a blueberry muffin. It was the best Anyway, me, I'm inclined to think a lot about what I might be doing differently with my body, including how I can push it to greater possibilities. I'm 56, and as you know, if you've been listening to this podcast, we bought a place in South Chicago so I could easily go swim in the open water of Lake Michigan. I arrange my travel around fabulous places where I can eat. When I see a storm is coming in, I move my body to where I can feel it, right down to my bones. It's odd then that one thing I haven't tried to do is to get my second eyeball working. Most days, I simply don't make any use of my left eye. As my father did not use his legs when he could, I do not use my left eye when I could. If I got my left eye working like most people's, then I could see in three dimensions. Instead, I see mostly in two most of the time. Seeing in only two dimensions doesn't bother me. I'm a writer. You don't need three dimensions to work on a page or work on a computer. But my lack of interest in trying to attain 3D vision has long troubled my big brother, Chris. Chris is a visual artist. He's a fantastic painter, although he also does animation and music and other forms of art. He can't understand why I don't try to train my body to bring my second eyeball online. So today on the pod, we have a very special guest, my big brother, Christopher Dreger, who also goes by Chris. He is a artist and a graphic expert. Um, He's actually super talented. I'm not just saying that because I'm his sister. As his his little sister, I would be inclined to say the opposite, that he's terrible, but he's actually really good. But (laughs) before we get started, I just want to note that as part of the agreement to appear on this podcast, my brother made me sign a notarized affidavit promising. I would not mention that when we were kids, he used to do things like drop spiders down my back. Or tell me that a bat was going to get stuck in my long hair and go insane, and then I would go insane. So I'm not allowed to mention any of that on the rock today. He, of <laughs> course, has no memory of having done this stuff to me. Is that I correct? The the, I do have a memory.
2: I have memory, though, of of you. Uh, what is it? Opening up a box that I had stored from college, and in it, oh like, my god, the molted um, remains of my pet tarantula from college. And so yes. it is when, when a tarantula molts it it leaves uh, essentially a, a shell of itself behind and of course you thought that was a real spider in there or a live spider rather because it was a real spider
0: well I didn't think it was live it had freaked me out and mom was standing mom was standing next to me and she said I still remember she goes what is wrong with him <laughs> <She said. laughs> And I was like, I don't know, not enough oxygen at birth, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So this episode is centered around uh, the story of how I have uh, only one eye that's operational most of the time, and you know this, but I'll just review it with you, that when I was a kid, as you recall, I had a wandering eye, and instead of doing the surgery, they patched my eye for a long time, and I looked like a little pirate, and um, it was my left eye that they patched. And basically, my brain just stopped receiving information from my left eye. So if I close my right eye, my left eye comes online. But otherwise, my left eye is not operational. So I don't have binocular vision most of the time. And I know this has really bugged you because you actually see in 3D. and your Wait, So, is, it's,
2: so it's, the wander, yeah. it's the wandering eye that is the original wandering eye doesn't work or does work?
0: The weird thing is the original wandering eye, I think, was my right eye and it works fine. <laughs>
2: Okay.
0: Because they were trying to force my right eye to become more muscular. And so the way they would do that was to force the right eye to work. So they patched the left one, which was the good one. And the left one still is a much better eye. It has much better vision. So when I get my glasses, my right lens is much stronger than my left lens because my left eye is actually a much more functional eye. But I I always joke I hold it in reserve (laughs) for later. (laughs) So you, you probably remember when I was patched and all that, yeah?
2: Yeah, yeah, totally.
0: Yeah. So it was only actually as an adult that I discovered that this wasn't working because um, I was uh, doing my driver's test, not not the driving test, but I was at the Department of Motor Vehicles where they make you look in this little um, binocular-like thing and read off the letters. And I, they asked me what was on the right, and I told them, and they asked me what was on the left. And I was like, there is nothing on the left. And the woman's like, well, what's on the left? I'm like, there is nothing on the left. And she goes, close your right eye. So I closed my right eye, and the left eye totally came online. And there's all this stuff. And I was like, okay, that doesn't seem right. <laughs> so I went to an optometrist, and I was like, how come my left eye is not working? And we went over this, and he was like, oh, yeah, I've seen this before. And I was like, should I be concerned or worried? And he said, well, when you – are driving, you should always look over your left shoulder before you you change lanes because you're probably not really receiving enough information on the left side. But yeah, so so every year, once or twice a year, maybe sometimes less frequently, both of my eyes suddenly work together and I see everything in 3D and I find it hilarious. <laughs> it looks like, looks like the dioramas at the American Museum of Natural <laughs> History. It's, like, it's so funny to me. So I was hoping you could explain what's it like to have binocular vision.
3: Um,
4: oh.
2: It's uh, normal. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's how most of us uh, navigate the three-dimensional world around us. <laughs> uh, I know it's very, very useful. You
0: sent me this book where you were trying to convince me to like try to bring the other eye online.
2: Yeah, because it was a book about a uh, scientist who also had that same issue. Who um, and she forced herself to train the other eye to work actually, and and to put her world in three D.
0: Yeah, I asked this neurologist friend of ours, uh, Megan Shanks, for this um, podcast about that, and I told her I didn't want to do it in part because I didn't want to get headaches. And she was like, "Yeah, you could really get headaches from that because you know when you're messing with your vision, you're trying to do stuff." And she said, "Well, if it works for you, why do you care?" And I said, well, you know, it's kind of cool when you see things in 3D. It looks really cool.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and I would think it would have caused uh, fewer, fewer fender benders in your early driving <laughs> days, uh, which I, I think you had a few.
4: Uh, we're also <laughs> not supposed remember? to mention that,
2: right? Oh, okay. You <laughs> can cut that out. Uh, <laughs> But, yeah, um, I always found it strange that, like, if you – as a human being, if you have the opportunity to experience the world in greater detail or with greater information input, why wouldn't you want that? You know, why would you be satisfied with um, not experiencing all you could experience, for sure? So it seems strange that you don't want to – you know, I I don't think the headaches would last forever. I mean, um, that's, like, with a lot of, like – what they say eye exercises and things like that you might get um headaches or if you if your vision is going and you're trying to like focus on something for a long period of time you might get headaches but uh, you know um i think those kind of headaches are just really a muscle fatigue um with your eyes probably and i would think that would pass anyway
0: So Megan Shanks is with us today. She's a physician, a neurologist, and she earned her MD at Rush University Medical College and her did a residency at the University of California, San Diego. She also completed a fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation, and she now works as a neurologist at North Shore Medical Group in Evanston, Illinois. And Megan and I have known each other for a thousand years because she's the better half of my old friend, Todd Chambers, who actually was with us on a different episode about life narratives. But I like Megan better, so I'm glad she's here. (laughs) (laughs) We
4: won't tell Todd that.
0: (laughs) Won't tell Todd. That's that's like what we've been saying for 20 years to each other. We won't tell Todd that.
4: (laughs) (laughs) That's the case.
0: So Megan, this episode is based on uh, a long-term argument I've had with my older brother Chris, who is a visual artist. As you know, I'm a writer, so I'm a textual artist, and it doesn't bother me that I only use one eyeball, but. This is, this is how it started, just briefly. When I was a kid, I had a wandering eye, and of course they patched my eye. But the, the patching, what it seems to have done is sort of shut down that side of my eye feedback with my brain. Because, And I didn't really realize this until I went to go take my driving test a few years ago. And they were, you know, they had me looking through that little device, and they're like, what's on the right? And I read it. And they're like, what's on the left? I'm like, there is nothing on the left. They're like, what's on the left? Like, there is nothing on the left. It's black. And she goes, shut your right eye. And I shut my right eye and boom, there's stuff. And I was like, whoa, that seems wrong. So then I uh, went to an ophthalmologist. And I was like, what's going on here? And he did a bunch of tests. He's like, yeah, basically, that side is just not talking. It works, but it's not communicating with your brain. It and I was like, confuse you. I, I said, should I be concerned? He was like, you know what, look over your left shoulder when you're about to change lanes. That would be a good idea. <laughs> and then I, I told one of my students who was becoming an MD about this. And she was like, didn't you ever notice how the kids who wanted to participate always graduated to the right side of your vision? And the ones who didn't want to participate gra- uh, ended up m- rotating to the left side because they knew you would wouldn't really see them as much. So does this story make any sense to you as a neurologist?
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. It does. Because if you saw double, cause I have tons of patients who developed this late in life as adults, right? So they have neuromuscular disease and you know, the eye muscle stops working, um, and the eye wanders off. And, um, they 're terribly distracted because, as an older adult, you just can 't suppress that image, and so we actually end up having to patch the eye so they can 't even look out of it um, or we have to give them prisms that you know move the visual um, image for that eye online it 's very distracting to have double vision um so it's it's a great coping mechanism if your brain's like oh yeah this is no that's no good i mean i had a patient who came in and he was like 30 and he's like well my i'm here why are you here and i noticed one eye was completely looking over <laughs> and the other eye was looking at me and so i you know i was like huh look at that his eyes are completely going in different directions and he's like i said are you here for double vision and he said no, I don't have double vision. I'm like, oh, no, it's not a problem. Then you'll be fine. He's like, what? What are you talking about? He's like, I'm here because my friends say my eyes look funny. <laughs> and I said, well, are you blind? Close close the, close your left eye, which was the one he was looking at me with. And suddenly his is right eye zoomed over yep. and looked at me. I was like, can you see me? He's like, yeah, absolutely. I said, yeah, don't worry about it did you ever have, you know, lazy eye as a kid? He said, no, 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 I didn't. And I was like, yeah, you did. <laughs> <laughs> and then a little while later, he's like, oh, wait a minute. I remember when I was like really little, they they had me doing like eye exercises. I'm like, yes, I know that already. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that makes sense, right? Because Uh, What was interesting is those eye exercises must have worked for him because his eyes were online for most of his life. But as he got older, that muscle got tired of doing it and it just wandered off.
0: But wouldn't it be easier to paint... A picture if you did have only 2d vision because you're you're recording something that's 2d uh
2: no not at all um in fact uh that's not really true uh so it is a weird thing in that you are creating a two-dimensional picture right so you're creating a flat picture something that doesn't doesn't have true depth to it however there are ways that you can increase the depth of a painting um, and a lot of artists have tried to uh, to incorporate this. Um, also, with binocular vision, we have to understand that, like you, um, you're not just you know you're not just sitting there from a from a, um, a static point of view. You're always moving your head. You're looking around things. So you're getting that binocular. You're getting that um, around object vision uh, just by the the common you know motions of the human body. Um, and I think that's probably how you compensate um, in, in terms of understanding the 3D world because you're not just simply like a camera taking one snapshot from one particular perspective but you're constantly moving around. And um, and it's just that with binocular vision that makes it even better because now you have two angles of vision and you're constantly moving around so that you're constantly seeing things. So. Um, Artists, uh, especially um, post, uh, like I post-Renaissance artists, have really always tried to get, um, like people like Van Gogh and Cezanne, they were really trying to get more space into a picture than, than a camera could get. You know, uh, this was the age of the beginning of the camera, um, which would shoot the world from one, from one particular uh, point of view. Um, But people like Van Gogh, um, some of the reasons that Van Gogh's like, say, farmhouse paintings look so uh, a little bit distorted was that he would start the painting at one location and then halfway through the painting, he would move like 15 feet off to the right or 15 feet off to the left. And so he would be seeing around corners more and he would include all that stuff in the painting. And so to us, it looks like it doesn't look photographic because it's a little bit distorted, but he was doing that purposefully to try to get more space into that flat picture um, than was possible just from one point of view. Uh, it's true that Renaissance perspective um, eh, as discovered in the, in the Renaissance essentially was like setting up a piece of glass on an easel and not moving your head and closing one eye and, and, and drawing everything and understanding linear perspective through that one eye and that one point of view. Um, but even as even in the Renaissance, people would employ multiple perspectives into paintings. So there's uh, certain um, Renaissance paintings that they look like a normal, say, courtyard scene, where you have uh, a deep a deep um, point of view, a deep a deep depth of perception, and a lot of people moving around. But if you actually analyze the painting. You can see that a portion of the painting was painted from one view, another, another um, portion of the painting was painted from another view, because there may be two horizon lines, there may be things that wouldn't work from a camera point of view. Um, and uh, this makes just a richer painting, a richer visual experience that's, that can't really be experienced through a photograph. Uh, and they did this uh, um, you know, all on purpose and very, very knowledgeably. When you get to Van Gogh and Cezanne and then later the Cubists, they were doing it more um, in a kind of freeform manner and not so regimented in terms of marrying the two different perspectives in a way that we couldn't tell. Um, so
0: as you've developed as a painter over the course of your life, because you've been painting for a very long time, 50-something years, um, how has your understanding of how to work with the 3d world changed in terms of how you how you're working with a an easel and a canvas
2: um let's see um well it's it's how's it changed um i guess when i became aware um why like in a saison painting the tabletop didn't match from left to right or in another, let's say, a po- impressionist or post-impressionist painting, um, like Degas, like uh, Degas' uh, images of ballet dancers, like in a studio, like just practicing. Um, there's, there's one I can't remember the name of it, but it's a, it's a long painting, and there's a bunch of ballet dancers, um, and the space of the studio is going back in space. And if you line up a ruler, you can see that the, that the line of the floor is actually either curved or it changes in direction slightly. Uh, as it goes through the painting. Um, and, and, and again, he did this in order to try to create a more full sort of uh, space in the painting itself. Um, I really learned about, uh, or really kind of discovered this in art school when, when a teacher asked me, um, you know, Drager, how do you look at uh, this painting? And I'm like, well, how do I look at a painting? Like, I didn't even understand the question at first, right? Because yeah. to, me, to me, I would look at a painting as a whole, and then you look at pieces of it, you look at chunks of it, um, and then you look at how those pieces fit together, and then you look at the whole again. So I'm always going, like, in and out and zooming in and out, kind of, like, with, as a camera. And he's like, no, 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 that's not the way you look at a painting. He's like, and, and, he, and he pointed out that, like, Renaissance paintings all have these elements that lead from one element, like a spear to a cloak to a window, and, you're suppo- and, and it was his idea that you're supposed to look at a painting and, tr- and let your eye travel around the geometric huh. forms, the two-dimensional geometric forms that describe the 3D world, right? And, I, and that, to me, was really a weird way to look at a painting, but I understood it to be the traditional way to look at a painting, which didn't make a whole lot of sense because... Um, in that way, you're never really looking at the whole thing. You're never stepping back and looking at trying to see the entirety at once. You're looking yeah, at you all, an how analysis. the parts. Yeah, so it's, it's like you it's like you're traveling across the the surface of the painting and in and out of the painting, but from from element to element and line to line. Um, and I thought that was very strange, and uh, and it occurred to me that well, it never it never uh, dawned on me before that that there are many ways to look at something like. You know, when people, you know, when you look at something, how do you look at it? Like, what does your eye actually do? You know, your eye can focus on little pieces um, and then bigger chunks. But it's like, but your eye is never really at rest, right? Your eye is continuously moving. um, And I think that's just an element of of the human eye. Plus, the human eye moves very, very fast. Um, I did this uh, uh, video composite once. Uh, for a trailer for a, for the Portland International Film Festival, and what it was was they filmed a model's eye um, really close up, and then we superimposed the globe on the eyeball. And, and but the thing is that we were working at twenty four and thirty frames a second, and I realized that the human eye moves faster than that, so there were no in between. Portion. there were no in-between frames from the woman looking this way to looking over there it mm-hmm. would like almost instantaneously just move like at much faster than 1 of a second so i i mean that means that you know our eyes are really going at a high speed um, that's uh almost um almost like a fly you know when you when you see a fly land on a surface and the way that that fly moves so quickly from position to position, it's almost like stop motion. You're looking at like all stop motion animation, because you're not seeing the in-between flowing movements. It's going so very fast that we can't really perceive the in-between movements.
0: Yeah. It must be because um, we're predators. Well, I mean, I, I think uh, one, of the, yeah. one of the really interesting things to me about how, because, because just, you know, because dad just died and I was redoing his room as a guest room and mom wanted to hang some of your early, self portraits um, she picked one i didn't think we should do five of your self portraits on room because that's like that's going to be a little freaky three crucifixes and five self portraits of chris was like more than i could handle in a guest room so i she picked one but you know looking at those old self portraits of you and then looking at the portrait of dad that you did um, which was hanging on the wall we rehung that on the wall you know It's really interesting because the early pieces are very realistic. They're sort of more photographic-like. And later you developed this other style where you sort of lumped up people's flesh and colored them in interesting colors, their faces and stuff. But to my mind, always, the farther you got into that development of portraiture, the more those portraits looked like the people that I knew that you were painting. It's almost eerie to me to look at that picture of dad. Like, it's dad. In fact, it's so dad that mom was like, don't hang that on the wall. And I was like, why do you not like that portrait? And she's like, because he's kind kind of got that look when he was pissed off, you know? And she was like, (laughs) he really captured that look. And I'm like, but that's why it looks like dad to me because he was so often irritated with me. You know, like that pic, I like that picture a lot because it really looks like dad to me. Same with the picture you did of mom and of our grandfather, Jaja, you know, and stuff. Like those portraits are really, to me, like somehow you just nail it in terms of capturing what is the essence of that person, even though it's not very realistic in terms of when you look at it simply as, uh, you know, compared to a photograph, it doesn't look anything like a photograph. It's much more impressionistic than a photograph.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's funny. Dad, Dad didn't think that looked at, like him at all. And everyone's yeah. like, no, that looks exactly like him. <laughs> um,
0: Man, I almost yeah, want to it over his face in the coffin because I was like, you know, I did not recognize him when they finished with him with the the funeral home. Right, right. like that picture looked so much more like him to me than he did at that point. And I should mention, it was awake at home. So the portrait was on the wall three feet away from him in the coffin at home.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and and in portrait painting, um, again, uh, binocular vision is very, very important because if you take a photograph of somebody as a portrait, it's just, again, that one lens, that one angle. If you're sitting there painting them, you're actually seeing around things, like just slightly around a cheekbone or slightly around a nose Right. And so you're actually seeing a little bit uh, um, around the person and you can put that into the flat picture. You can put that into the flat plane and it's not going to match up totally to a photograph that's taken from one particular viewpoint. Um, But again, it it makes it makes it look more presence and more um, realistic. I think Rembrandt did this a lot um, because you are, are actually seeing just a little bit more detail, kind of like Van Gogh was like moving aside. To see a little bit more of the of the other side of the of the building that he's painting, um, you can do that with a portrait, and you can you know again see around the corners of things essentially. Um, yeah, I've always not- wondered if
0: the fact that I use only one of my eyes is the reason I'm a little bit face blind. I have a terrible time recognizing people by face. And it's very hmm. embarrassing because, you know, I'll run into people that I know relatively well, and I cannot figure out who they are until I get the context from the conversation. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, this is so and so. But it's it's really, uh, you know, face blindness is this well known thing. And I constantly wonder if it happens more in people who are only using one eye. Because, you know, when you go to do your facial recognition on your iPhone, for example, it makes you move your head all around. And I think that that's what it's doing, right? It's doing the 3D absorption of all those contours of your face. And I think I'm not getting that when I'm looking at a face, I'm not getting the 3D. So I really struggle with people's faces in terms of recognizing people. So every year or two, my, my two eyes start working together. And for a few minutes, I get binocular vision. And I think it's hilarious because it looks like the world is a little diorama. Like everything is 3D all of a sudden. And I don't know why this I'm would happen. I'm fascinated by that. So what, what does it look like?
4: Well, it looks like HDTV all of a sudden. Where like there's depth of field. And so, but can you, can, have you ever tried to watch 3D? Like 3D, yes, red and that. What happened? I get a migraine if I yeah, do it. It, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really, really hurts. I cannot do that. It, it yeah. like almost immediately starts hurting really, really badly, and
4: I start feeling nauseous.
0: So it's so, interesting.
4: I wonder if it's your eye strain or brain strain.
0: I don't know, but my brother, who's the artist, my brother Chris, keeps wanting me to do these special eye exercises that would, in theory, bring the other eye online, and I keep telling him like. I don't want to, cause it might give me headaches and I just don't I, like, it doesn't bother me. Okay. Occasionally it bothers me. Like the other day I accidentally stuck my hand in a pot of boiling water because I have trouble with depth perception.
4: No. <laughs> <laughs> so now, oh, yeah. there is now, that. <laughs> now and then
0: I do that kind of thing or I, you know, I'm running and all of a sudden I'm like, don't realize that the surface has changed and I fall because the surface has changed and I can't see it if it doesn't change in color.
4: Yeah. So it becomes a philosophical question, right? Is it worth it to you or is it not? Your brain's done this really amazing, clever thing where it's like, oh, well, she's always going to have double vision. That's not coming back. Let's just dump one of these. Okay, yeah. let's dump this one. How it decides which eye to dump is another fascinating question. I don't know how you, you know, because everybody, you know, when you cite with a a gun or a binocular, you know, monocular vision, you, you pick one eye, you're, you're, you know, right-handed or you're left-footed or you're right-eyed or left-eyed, right? So it's picked one of them already. It's like, hey, this is the better eye to look with. But then it decides not to use that eye, but you can see with that eye. And that's the fascinating part is anytime you close your, your, your sighting eye, it, it can bring that other one back. Do you see, differently with that eye i you, i know you're not used to looking with does it make you tired to look it makes you? me
0: tired so fast yeah. really really tired really fast so in in the event there's something going on with my right eye and they have to patch it it's exhausting to look at things because my yeah. left eye is just and it is, so is that the brain getting exhausted
4: yeah yeah no it really is um like when i first moved to um chicago from sydney i uh, i would get exhausted listening to people with their Midwest accents. I could understand them. They were speaking English. It wasn't like I had to learn a new language. But if I came home at the end of the day, I was like, oh, I just want someone to speak with a normal accent. (laughs) I am so tired. My brain is having to translate it all day long. And so, yeah, you can get really tired doing something differently than you're used to doing and you can train it up if you lost vision in your sighting eye that's your is it your left eye that you you look with my right that's eye your right eye so if you you know got had to have cataract surgery or have to have that patched you could learn to do it with that left eye it would be really tiring until it got used to it
0: Listening to Megan and thinking about my brother I came to realize how much Chris has trained up his brain using his eyes This is not something I've done Just viewing art in person is something completely different for your brain Chris, Mike, and I got to talking about how important it is to see a painting in person Mike talked about seeing the paintings of Eric Fischel in person Of children at the beach And how much different these artworks look in person Than in reproductions in books Completely different
1: So and and I remembered it because I used to teach a study abroad program and I there are a lot of his works, I think, in the it's the Brondhorst Museum in Munich and we would take students to see them every year. And when I looked up some of his paintings online, including including some that I had seen in person, I was much less impressed by the small digital replication that came up. And I was almost after the build-up was almost embarrassed to show my wife to say, this is what I was talking about. Because when I'm at the gallery, you know, four to eight feet from a very large canvas, it could be 12 by 12, to me, I'm thinking, oh, this is, you know, I'm, I'm really taking it in and I'm remembering these even fine details versus like a meta picture. But then when I just look up the 300 by 300 pixel version of it on my phone, I was like, well, this is you know, I don't know if I would buy the book of these paintings necessarily after just looking and, and it was, and it was weird because I, he's, his work is one that I only really know from seeing in person multiple times, you know, some of the same works several times. And then when I went to actually look them up on my own separately, just, I had a thought, I was like, oh, well, this is, I'm much less enthused or I, this doesn't, this isn't, revving my engine like I remember it doing in person, you know. Um, so I, it was a bit of an inverse uh, of what you were saying with the Matisse, but I definitely felt that where I, I was almost disappointed that I even brought it up because it kind of, you know, I was like, was I fooled when I saw it in person? But I mean, that's how you're supposed to see it. So.
2: Yeah, no, I think, I think that's very important. Um, first of all, the colors are always going to be very different in real life with um, <clears throat> the painting because the RGB monitor is never going to be able to replicate a lot of colors that are found in paint. Um, that's especially true with like, very colorful painters like Van Gogh um, at, his, at his peak. Uh, and then also it is about size you know, because, a, because a painter, um, a particular painting, a particular composition is meant to be seen at the size that it was painted at. Um, and so if you see it at a different size, it really definitely doesn't have the presence um, because you're in a different relationship. You're in a different perspective to the painting. Um, and, and it's not going fill to your, fill your visual field or it's not going to be, um, say, a small like, miniature that you focus in on. Um, any of those size differences really, really matter quite a lot. Um, yeah, I think that's a really good point.
0: With all this discussion of how life feels different with different visions, I found myself really wondering about trying to use my second eye along with my first. But as I was thinking about this question, should I use my second eyeball, I got to thinking kind of defensively that there are plenty of body parts we opt to shed along the way in life, plenty of parts we stop using. I wanted to think about that more, so I tapped Anthony Paganini, a physiologist who teaches medical students at Michigan State University in East Lansing, where I live most of the time. Physiologists like Anthony study feedback loops in the body, and he thinks about it all in terms of evolution.
3: it's, It's anything, because to me, in my mind, getting back to the evolution part of it, I, I'm fundamentally, as a medical educator, in, in the business of the cultural transmission of present and prior knowledge. That's what I fundamentally do. And I, and I kind of, and, I, and I'm being very uh, romanticized about this, but I, I kind of envision myself as being one of the elder hominidae with the younger around the campfire on the savannah, telling him about how the body works. Yeah. And, and for me, there are so many things you can know about in life. Uh, and, and, and to me, for me personally, step one is, is to try and know yourself, you know, f- biologically and know yourself mentally and emotionally as best you can. Um, and I'm still on a journey with that myself, but, you know, biologically, I'm, I'm just telling the story of life.
0: I asked Anthony to talk with us about two things that we can live without and that we sometimes remove, the appendix and body hair.
3: The interesting thing about body hair is I think it's it's a great exa- example of a very famous quote by a guy by the name of, uh, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, and I may not be, uh, Theodosius uh, Dobzhansky, who published a paper in the American Biology Teacher in 1973, and the famous quote that he has is, nothing in biology makes sense except in the eyes uh, or in the light of evolution. And when you think about body hair <laughs> um you know you think about humans uh, and uh, compared to our cousins um our hominid cousins you know our hair is predominantly on the top of our head yes we have some on the rest of our body but we're predominantly you know kind of uh, in, a, in a rhetorical sense thought of as the naked ape and you know it kind of one thing i was thinking about um was imagine you know 10 fifteen thousand years ago we didn't really have much, you know, we have combs, certainly didn't have stylists and hair product and things like that. We must have looked, we must have had bedhead most of the time, you know, 10, 20,000 years ago. That's
0: why it's sexy. <laughs> That's
3: true. Yeah, we're kind of used to it, right? Evolutionally used to it. So, uh, so why hairless? So there's been a lot of theories and what I'm going to do is kind of articulate some of the ones, some of the earlier ones. There's some that are very controversial that are really not given much credibility by uh, people in the know. And again, this is more kind of along the anthropological, biological field realm. And then I'll leave you with kind of the, right now it's thought to be the most likely hypothesis that people are trying to continue to test and and sort out. So the, the first one was, of course, by none other than Charles Darwin back in the late 1800s. And it was thought of as, uh, a signaling, um, feature for sexual selection. Um, right. I think we all know that this day and age, and it's been going on for quite a while, that women across many cultures in the world have been socialized to spend far more money and endure far more pain, <laughs> removing non-scalp hair and modifying their scalp hair compared to males. Yes. Uh, which, you know, there's a lot of ways you can look at that. I'm not saying I'm not passing judgment on whether it's good or bad. I'm just trying to trying to state something that's. A, I'll do that
0: for you. Okay, it's, please do that. It's bad.
3: It's bad, <laughs> uh, which can be seen by some as enhancing the visual gender disparity, um, and or as a way of signaling higher socioeconomic class because you have the money and time to endure that.
0: To have your so ass taped and waxed and whipped, right? Yes. right. ripped. Sorry, ripped. <laughs> so that's
3: that's the sexual selection hypothesis. So uh, so continuing on, um, there's the one that's called the aquatic ape hypothesis. This is extremely controversial, as well. Uh, the argument is here is that there is an aquatic period in our evolutionary history as Hominidae. I mean, I'm not I'm not talking about the the tilios fish crawling out of the out of the sea here. I'm talking about the Hominidae. Uh, very controversial, where it says that some of our hominid ancestors needed to hunt near the seashore and in the shallow waters. And so they had to lose hair because hair, of course, in a water environment, it has a huge aerodynamic drag. I mean, you think of how smooth dolphins uh, skin is. It's just the opposite of that, right? Or, you know, swimmers always want to shave off all of their hair to maximize um, how fast they can go through the water. So that's, one hypothesis, again, very controversial, pretty much anybody that's in the know rejects that, although it, it is, it does kind of percolate out there, um, much like, you know, lactic acid causes fatigue. It continues to be in the, in the literature for reasons that I don't understand. <laughs> um, then there's the ectoparasite hypothesis. This is one where we lost our hair because hair provides, you um, uh, an environment, a forest, if you will, uh, where ectoparasites like lice and fleas and bed bugs and bites and ticks and things like that can can uh, uh, can populate. So that's another one, and that that one's you know plausible. The last one is actually uh, in the in the one that's. that's got I,
0: I have to tell. You, I'm just scrolling through ex boyfriends as you discuss all of this. But go ahead, <laughs> continue if you will.
3: Um, the 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 most current as far as I understand it. Again, I'm not an evolutionary biologist by training, but I try to look at biology through uh, evolutionary light. Right. Um, the, the current hypothesis is that hairlessness is, is part of a, of a larger adaptation toward getting us to bi, uh, bipedality. Okay, so-
0: Two-leggedness.
3: Right, two-leggedness, exactly. So if you think about the advantage, let's first think about the advantages of being bipedal. Okay, and then we can kind of work a little bit backwards and think, you know, okay, why well, you might want to be hairless.
0: Anthony went on to explain here that this theory holds that once our ancestors evolved to move around on the savanna on two legs, it made more sense in terms of cooling to have less hair, so those with less hair survived better in the lived environment. Why would we have retained hair, especially in our pubic region and our armpits? In our conversation, Anthony posited it might be sexual signaling, hair retaining scents from our glands to attract potential mates, but I posited it might be lubrication— as someone who doesn't shave all that often, my old yurt mother raised me to see body hair as a normal part of being an adult human female, I can tell you your arms and your legs move much more easily if you don't remove the hair in between them. I also asked Anthony to explain why we have an appendix, something we can live without. Anthony explained that about 7% of people will suffer appendicitis in their lifetimes, and without antibiotics or surgery, a healthy percentage of those people could die, so, evolutionarily speaking, why would we keep this organ that we don't seem to need and that is so dangerous to us?
3: So, there's a lot of, a lot of different theories of you know, why we have an appendix um, in general. One of the ones that's been very popular over, over the years has been in that it serves as some sort of safe harbor for commensal bacteria to repopulate the colon.
0: Good bacteria.
3: Yeah, good bacteria, right, right, the ones that we live with symbiotically, or at least that don't hurt us. Um, So they
0: they hide out there in their little shelter, and then you get some horrible virus— Right. And your gut empties, and you're like on the floor, and you really need your good bacteria back. And rather than having to wait until you can somehow repopulate yourself through the means of like eating something or being exposed in some other way, your appendix says, "Release the troops!" And the troops come into your colon and repopulate, and your gut starts to feel better again.
3: That that is, I would say sure, one this, one, this one extreme is, version of looking at it. But yes, uh, this is that how could you teach it in medical
0: it. school. I know you, This is how you teach it in medical school. But go ahead.
3: Yeah. So, so that, that would be a, a possibility, for instance, after diarrheal disease to do that. Of course, you know, bacteria being bacteria, you know, you know, they're extremely small compared to our eukaryotic cells in our, in our body. Uh, you know, they can hide out in lots of places. And as you might know, it doesn't take many bacteria to, to remain. You know, even if you've had diarrheal disease, that doesn't mean like all of your bacteria have been completely wiped out of your body. You still have some left. There's a lot of little nooks and crannies, shall we say, in the small intestine and the large intestine the bacteria can hang out with and, and begin to repopulate. So I don't, to me, the argument that it's the sole safe harbor for bacteria is plausible, but quantitatively, it doesn't seem a strong argument um, for that. Because you've got plenty of places these bacteria can hang out with. Um to me what seems more plausible um, is, is that it is a location of many, one of many locations in the gut tube. And what I mean by the gut tube is basically anything from mouth to anus, um, the elementary canal, if you will. And actually the respiratory system is a derivative of the gut tube, so you could even include that technically. Um that it's location of lymphatic tissue and cells that are part of the, the mucosal immunity to maintain a detente with the commensal bacteria and to defend against pathogenic bacteria. Because, you know, commensal is commensal until it's not. Commensal is commensal until you have a breach in the epithelium. And then the commensal bacteria get in the wrong place and they cause problems. Like, for instance, Staphylococcus aureus is... Uh, uh, bacteria that you potentially could find on your skin, you can find in your in your nose, for instance, and it it will be there and, it, and it's not doing you any harm until potentially there is a break in the skin and then it gets in the wrong place. You can't defend against it and, and it multiplies. So, like I said, commensal bacteria is not always good. It's bad if it's in the wrong place in the gut wall. So you need lymphatic tissue. You need, if you will, you know, troops on your side in the location near the near to the demilitarized zone, the mucosa. Um, to to guard against commensal bacteria kind of going wayward, or clearly pathogenic bacteria like C. difficile.
0: You can hear more of this really interesting physiology on the tangent here. Anthony went on to explain that the appendix seems to have evolved and then been kept in our species in part to deal with our ancestors having been eaters of tough plants sometimes. The appendix's old ancestral function might have been digestion of tough plant material, but nature may have kept the appendix in our evolution because maybe it turned out to be useful for something else—repopulating our guts with good bacteria after bad infections. So it's a vestige, but one that ends up being useful for something it didn't originally evolve to do. What's a vestige? In Anthony's words, it's a structure that has some kind of diminished importance compared to past ancestors.
3: A, a rudimentary structure that lacks a complex uh, function that's similar to structures found in other species. Like, so the classic, the two classic examples that vestigial can mean in this context are like the rudimentary wings of an ostrich, which does do absolutely nothing for flight, but they still have them. And then the eyes of a cave fish. So cave fish still have eyes, but you know, you know, they don't use them.
0: Or hair on a whale.
3: Hair on a whale, right, exactly. exactly. That's another great, another great example. So um, when you think about the appendix and why, you know, what it means to be vestigial as an appendix, it's really a good example of something that has actually not undergone what's called evolutionary adaptation, which is, you know, what you think about when you think about the eye evolving and so on. It's not something that's undergone uh, evolutionary adaptation um, in humans, in our, in our cousins, uh, in, in the hominidae uh, family, but rather what is called... Exapitation. Exapitation. E X that, A P T A T I O N. And that's an that's kind of a, a new term that maybe some folks haven't heard. So
0: it's worth like 350 points in Scrabble.
3: Scrabble, exactly. <laughs> so so expectation, X, ex, it's not exception or expectation, it's exaptation. You have to you have to have that A-P in there. Um, it's a process by which a structure acquires functions. For which the structure was not originally adapted or selected for. Okay, so for example, um, as I was mentioning, uh, humans are evolutionarily what I think of as kind of facultative omnivores. We can eat plants, we can eat meat, depending upon what's available in the environment at that time. It's probably a reason that we were able to, you know, radiate out of Africa quite successfully. Um, so the the need for a large cecum in humans is not as great, right? We're not just dependent right. upon the grasses of the savanna. Um, so the idea is, is that it has some role in, in, in not that, but in, in helping maintain the mucosal immunity of the gut tube. In other words, it contributed, although certainly not the only player, but contributed to the overall mucosal associated, uh, immunity that we need to, um, Uh, you know, keep the commensal bacteria at bay to defeat the pathogenic bacteria.
0: I love the idea that we've got these organs or cells in us that evolved for one purpose, but that are now being used for something else entirely, that our parts can reassemble in terms of connections to do something so new, that what it means to be an evolved human today is to be using what evolved in us in totally new ways.
4: You know, it's philosophical, right? We don't see the world. We just see our brain's interpretation of the world by using, you know, the sensory inputs, the visual inputs, the audio inputs, the, you know, the skin inputs, the gut inputs um, even.
2: I've always uh, thought of all um are all of the arts as being the same thing what you're doing is you're taking a certain number of elements you're arranging them in a balance that seems to resonate with reality in some way right whether those are visual elements or whether those are musical elements there's there's something that makes it a whole like the gestalt idea where where you're taking parts and it could be very simple it could be one voice and one guitar or it could be a symphony right of many many parts put together Um, but it doesn't really matter how many parts there are as long as they create a kind of balance and wholeness that resonates with something that's real in some way right it doesn't have to be I mean it could still be a fantasy painting or a sci-fi song or something like that but it's but it's going to somehow create a complete experience Um, and so I don't really see the difference between a lot of different forms of art in that way
0: Are there parts of our brains where we shouldn't go? Like dark rooms where we should not attempt to awaken that part of the brain?
4: Um I definitely think there's parts of your brain you shouldn't go to without a trained without trained professional help, right? Okay. Cuz another thing the brain does is it suppresses memories that are you can't handle it right now. So that comes up in my specialty because I'll have people who have pseudo seizures, right? So um non-epileptic spells, non-epileptic. And a lot of those people were abused, sexually abused particularly as children. Oh wow. And it's um it's definitely a way, you know, if you have a lot of abuse or a lot of trauma as a child, it does the same thing. The childhood brain can shift um problems down the line is how I see it. Yeah, Um, It's like, yeah, we can't really cope with that right now. So we're just going to close that off and you're not going to be able to remember it or you're not, we're not going to just deal with that right now. And those people much more likely to have seizure type spells when they're older. Um, And it's a coping mechanism. And I've not read anywhere why that happens, how that happens, what the process is of also um but it's a it's a stress relieving mechanism it's not a good one because it's you know it stresses them out that they lose control of all their bodily functions for a few minutes or 20 minutes and start flailing around and freak out everybody around them but it's a strange coping mechanism i met another woman who um came in for memory problems she was in her 40s and she said it was weird I was looking through my photo album and there was a wedding that I'd gone to that I couldn't remember at all. And then I noticed there were huge patches of my life where there would be a week or so. And I did all the you know Alzheimer's memory testing, short-term memory, all the typical stuff for degenerative memory diseases. They were fine. She Her short-term memory was fine. It was her long-term memory that had a problem. And unlike most soap operas, you don't lose your long term memory from Alzheimer's or from getting hit in the head. You right. lose short term memory. It's that recent memory. You can't lay down new memories. So I said, "There's something strange with your your memory processing." And by the way, we were abused as a child. And first, she was like, oh, "And she? Well, yes, I, I was." And I was like, "Oh, this is like a another version of that." I'm not a psychiatrist so i'm not trained to help you bring out those memories but i think you should probably talk to someone who is used to dealing with people with child you know being who abused his children and you should definitely talk to them and and work on that because i think it's it's strange i've never read anywhere that this happens but she would you know because she 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 started paying attention and she would have this floating blob of you know amnesia and it would float over that wedding or that period of time it wouldn't even be a time of her life though. it would be a time of her life that was happy where she was doing really well or she yeah. was a good, good relation and it would just float over it and block it and then it would unblock it wow and I was like your brain is doing some really interesting things with your long-term memories go go fix it <laughs> <laughs>
0: so is it do you know of a type of psychiatry that does fix that
4: um well my I, I don't know specifically Um, Because it's hard to, you know, figure out what kind of psychiatrist to go to. But I was like, there's some protective mechanism that your brain started doing when you were a kid, and it seems to have become a little unmoored, right? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Um, go, Go, you know, and... Does, you know, uncovering your childhood, and we, uh, Todd and I have, it argue, have argued about this, is it good to go unpack that to, you know, you know, or are your coping mechanisms that you have in place working for you? Are they effective, right? So this circles around to you. Are the coping mechanisms that your brain has to help you deal with whatever it was dealing with in childhood a good thing? And or do we want to unpack them all and then put them back together? Because we might not have a good coping mechanism in place. It might be worse when we get through the other end of unpacking all of that. You might have a whole bunch of problems that you didn't have before when you were suppressing that memory, or that issue, or that family trauma. And let me guess, Todd argues, leave it alone. Yeah, well, yeah, course. How'd <laughs> <laughs> <Can't> you guess? <laughs> leave it alone, take some pills, you'll be good. <laughs> That's what I would have guessed. So should we leave your eyes alone? Because yes. your, your brain says, no, don't do that, you've got a headache. No, don't do it. I don't want to do that work. Nope, I don't want
0: to do that work. Still, when I think about Dad and I listen to the way my brother experiences the world, I think sometimes I should risk the headaches. Chris is talking here about a painting called The Red Studio by Matisse.
2: But when I first, um, or one of the times when I saw The Red Studio, because it's been hanging at the MoMA for, um, I don't know, forever, I guess. Um, and uh, one of the things that occurred to me when you look at it, it's, it's a painting where the walls are red, the floor is red. Um, and it's all the same red, right? It's not like a, a a changing red, um, based on the light as it really hits a room. It's just a flood of the same color, kind of an earth, uh, red, a little bit higher than an earth red. Um, and then it's got some things like a chair and a stool and an easel and some paintings leaning against the wall. And they're painted, things like the chair are painted in just like kind of white lines and they look distorted. Um, When you look at them, they look like slightly distorted, nothing really matches up with itself um, in any particular part of the painting. It's definitely not Renaissance perspective. Um, But it occurred to me to try to look at the, I don't know why, but to look at the whole painting at once. I guess I've, I've been doing this for a long time. You do this with a lot of abstract paintings like a Rothko or something where you try to um, step back and unfocus your eyes so that you're looking at the entire painting all at once and you're not just looking at little individual parts and then the whole thing, right? You're just trying yeah. to, to see the entire thing at once. And, and the Red Studio is something like, I don't know, five feet by six feet or something like that. So it's a fairly good um, size that will uh, fill your, your, your field of view. Um, but when I looked at it all at once and didn't focus on any one part, everything snapped into place. It was like amazing. It was like you were inside the room. And it made so much sense that he painted the walls and the floors all this red, because that, ju- that color just engulfs you in the atmosphere. And then all of the seemingly distorted images all snap into place um, in one very realistic kind of way. Uh, and so um, I think that's really the way to look at that painting is to, is to have it fill your point of view, like to get like say eight feet from the entire painting and look at the whole thing all at once and then everything makes sense. So that's a very difficult way to paint and to, um, it's easier to look at that, but, it, but it, in terms of painting it, you really have to essentially paint your picture without focusing in on anything you're actually painting and trying to draw things as they appear from an unfocused view, if that makes any sense. <laughs> Uh, but it was really, yeah, it was, really re- uh, it was really a revelation and I still don't find this in any of the literature you know um, I don't I, I haven't seen anyone talk about this painting in that way um, which is unfortunate because I think that's really the key to, to enjoying some of Matisse's paintings and, and to enjoying a lot of like Cezanne van Gogh um, and some of the other post-impressionists who also did seemingly distorted images, if you, if you step back and look at the thing without focusing your eyes on anything, it really becomes real in a way that is not like reality because these painters didn't paint in Renaissance reality, but it's real in the terms of the space and the light and the forms.
0: Well, we're at at an interesting moment with one of your paintings because I asked you to paint a really large painting for us for our place in Chicago for the living room wall and asked you specifically to do it of us at the beach when we were kids. And the reason I asked for that painting was because you did this incredible painting that hangs in my dining room at home of us sledding as kids. And, you know, I still remember when I took it out of the box uh, because you shipped it to us, Aaron said, I don't know what it is because it's a very impressionistic picture. And I said, Oh my God, it's us in the sump on our sleds, and it's us <laughs> sledding down the hill. Like it was so obvious to me what it was. And so that picture is it's just one of my favorites because it's so evocative of those times that we would jump the fence together and go sledding down the hill there um, in this sump that was behind, it was a open space behind the yards in our subdivision. And it was, um, fenced off cause we weren't supposed to go in it cause it was a drainage pit basically. But of course, as kids, we were jumping the fence and going there because we could sled down the hill in it down towards the drainage ditch. Um, but when I, when I asked you to do something of us at, um, Fire Island, where we grew up, uh, the, Atlantic Ocean all the time, and I know you were struggling with the issue of how to deal with the perspective of being in water and looking back at the beach from being in the water together, and you shipped this painting to us, and it's very large, so I can't take it out of the roll until we have the stretchers, and because of the pandemic, the damn stretcher bars are delayed, and so I've been living with this painting I can't look at now for like eight weeks, and it's killing me, So, but tell us about what you did in terms of trying to capture the sensation of being in water.
2: Um, yeah, that's a that's a weird one, and I don't know if that it's entirely successful because water is one of the most difficult things to paint. Um, Why?
3: You know, Why is a human, water really a human hard? human face
2: is easy compared to water because of its translucency, the multiple levels, the light passing through it, um, all these things, and it's always in motion. Generally, are um, almost always in motion, and so that makes it really super difficult to paint. Um, and I've always just had trouble painting wa- bodies of water. Um, Uh, again, I think, I think it's largely the motion, you know, it's like, unless you take a picture of it, you can't really analyze what it looks like, um, in in real time because it's moving generally too fast. Even just a slight ripple is going to be, you know, changing the light all over the place. So that's what made it really difficult. Um, plus I wanted to make, um, I didn't want to just do a straight up, uh, like camera view of Jones Beach, um, or the ocean. And you wanted the umbrellas in there because that was some of your favorite parts of Jones Beach, I guess was the, uh, the colors of the umbrellas. Um, but I wanted to get the, the feel of the sun in the sky that I remember and ex- I've experienced and um, the feel of the, the water itself. Uh, and then it's also um, uh, the limitation of pigments in paint, in paint. Um, the limitations of permanent pigments that you can use in paint. Uh, you can never quite get those true colors of blues and greens that are, that you find in water. So that's really frustrating, um, I find. Uh, and, um, and yeah, so I was thinking of doing it as a perspective from the beach looking out to the water, but I thought it would be more fun to actually be in the water looking at the beach because then you would be seeing the umbrellas, of course, and you would be engulfed in the water. Um, I like paintings, especially large paintings. I think should engulf you in their, in their atmosphere um, or in yeah. their, their setting.
4: If right brain wrote a book, what would it be like to read it? Ah, uh, we couldn't. It'd be all pictures. Oh <laughs> yeah, it'd be no verbal, like. I have a very intelligent right brain. That's all I can account for from doing neuropsych testing in med school, you know, samples. I got all the way to the end of the picture book where you got less and less and less visual cues. Yeah. you sit, And I said, oh, that's a sneaker. Well, you can see the – and none of my friends could see it. They're like, how do you know that's a sneaker? Like, it just is. You look. <laughs> you can see it. <laughs> uh, left brain, I forget names of people. I forget names of dis- disorders. I know the disorder. I just can't remember the name of it. I forget actors' names. Todd knows all the actors' names, all the directors' names. Like, it's familial, by the way. My mom has it. My sister has it. It's like, remember that movie? I don't remember the name of it. It had that guy in it. I don't remember his name. was he- <laughs> woman, whatever name. And by the end of the conversation, all three of us know which movie and which actor, and it drives Todd completely insane because we haven't ab- been able to come up with the name of the movie or the actor or the actress, but we know what movie we're talking about. So left brain, pretty good. Right brain, apparently very intelligent. There's um, a textbook, a pathology textbook. It had a bunch of graphs and diagrams and pictures. And and also there was another textbook we could have. It was all text, 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 text. Some of my friends and the teacher, interestingly, said, hey, you can have either book. You can get the text-heavy one or the picture-heavy one. Got the picture-heavy one. When my father had photographic memory, he could go into a test and see the paragraph and read the problem. I could see the paragraph the information was in, but not read it. It was all blurry. Oh, wow. I could picture it, but not read it. But I could see the diagrams, and I'm like, oh, the information's there. I can see that. And then I might be able to get to the answer. So when we talk about different types of learning, it sounds like there really are different types of learning. Yeah. Um, Temple Grandin, who, um, you know, Asperger's, you know, high-functioning, autistic, uh, fascinating books about how the brain works. First few books, she assumed that everybody else had picture learning. She, she can. Um, I have a very odd. Um, it's visual memory, but it's not photographic. I if I see something, I can't draw it later. I have a friend who can see something, can't draw it that day if it's not in front of him. Particularly faces, because he does a lot of. Um, Uh, paintings of people's faces Um, and the next day he can draw it from memory in detail even if he's only known the person for one day wow Uh, he can't bring that person's face to mind at all until he goes to sleep then the next day he can bring it to mind that's amazing fascinating that is so interesting he has sabotaged he has cannibalized all his short-term recall and put it into long-term detail that's the only thing i can think of that's wild Whereas I can't do both. I can only draw things if they're in front of me. I can't draw something from memory, visual memory. (laughs) Now
0: I want to ask you a question which you can absolutely not answer because I don't want to get you in trouble. What do you do when you're teaching all this great stuff in medical school and you run across a medical student who doesn't believe in evolution?
3: (laughs) Oh, that's okay. Uh, You know, it's... it it, it does if you want if you need a celestial design committee or a deity to make life as it is that's fine you're treating the patient right yeah you're treating you're treating the the end product the the end effect of however you got to that point you know as, as as physicians always do they treat the patient in front of them whatever their motivations whatever they did in their previous life they're just trying to help that person that's in front of them and
0: But I've always liked, you know, physicians who sort of cut to the chase of like, does it matter? Or does it not matter? Because I remember one time going into my gynecologist, who was actually a DO, and there was a medical student there, and so I always feel obligated, you know, to like be patient when they have a medical student, since my spouse mm-hmm. was then in charge of medical education at that time. And so right. I thought, well, what interesting questions can I ask? So I asked him, you know, how come sometimes when I'm sexually turned on, my toes dislocate? And he was like, well, have you ever watched old movies? where in when the sensors existed and when a woman would be like getting into an affair with a man and they'd pan down to her toes and her toes would curl. And I was like, Oh my God. Yes. Is that's what that was about? And he was like, yeah, totally. That was the signal. And I was like, yeah. but why does it happen? He goes, just enjoy it. Who cares?
4: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> he was out, and he was a yeah. DO, you know, he's so he was yeah. a doctor of bones, but he was like, I don't know why it happens, you know? Right, right, right. And I thought, no, he's right. There's some stuff we'll never know why it happens about no. the human body. And that's, I think that's to me is some, what's so cool about being alive, right? Is that mm. we, we tend so much because of WebMD and Wikipedia and all of that to think about all the things that are wrong with our bodies. Mm. But we don't often enough get told to just like, Dig it, you know, dig mm. your body hair. Dig the fact that you can do aerobic exercise. Dig mm. the fact that you can bond with a baby. You know, all of mm-hmm. these physical mm-hmm. things we can do are so freaking awesome. Being a mammal, is a being an evolved mammal is awesome.
3: Right, right. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we maintain a very high energy, um, high entropy state of, of disequilibrium, you know, because equilibrium is death. And it takes a lot of energy to do that, but we should in, be enjoying the ride. You know, yes. we're, we're putting all this, this little uh, mental and, and metabolic energy into being human. So you're right. I mean, there's so many things that have to go right every single millisecond of the day for us to live. It, it's nice to appreciate that and not overly focus on what could go wrong at any minute and kind of get yourself into a, a, a hole that's gonna going to depress you.
0: There are times I take the kayak out, that time of the late afternoon that's called the golden hour, when I get to the Looking Glass River and I push myself out into the water and go to where everything is quiet. And I wait for that light that comes to the river as the sun goes to bed. The light comes in obliquely at sunset and it hits the water, and the Looking Glass River truly becomes a mirror, shining the light up into the willows and the cottonwoods and the reeds from below. And suddenly I can look up and I can see everything that I think my brother sees. Everything is in motion from the light coming off my right eye. It occurred to me in working on this episode that one of the reasons I really love my brother's work is that he creates paintings that allow me to see much more depth than I can normally see. His paintings provide me depth in ways I couldn't possibly explain, but that I feel. With no headache, it feels like he's giving me back my left eye.
1: This is Just Answer the Question, a thinking podcast created by Alice Dreger and produced by Michael Teeger. Mixing and mastering services were provided by Risky Studios. Today's helpers were Chris Dreger, Megan Shanks, and Anthony Paganini. Subscribing to our podcast gets you notifications of when new episodes drop. Subscribe on your favorite pod platform or go to our website, JATQPod.com. We also offer the Tangent tier as a paid subscription, which includes the full recordings with our helpers, where you can hear more stories, ideas, and back chatter. The music you heard on today's episode was created and performed by Michael Teeger, That's Me. You can learn more about Alice's work and my work by checking out the links provided at jatqpod.com. Just Answer the Question is assembled under the auspices of Michigous Productions, LLC.